the Engaged Midwife Podcast. This is Missy. And this is Kara. Welcome to the new year. I know. We're going to kick it off with um, a listener request. We tried this morning to figure out who this listener was, but we can't recall. So whoever you are, thank you for this idea. Um, and it's also a spinoff off of two previous episodes. We have done a couple of episodes on abnormal uterine bleeding. And I think that that's been really helpful because I feel like for midwives, we are the ones when we see this on our schedule where we're like, ew, because there's so many differentials that go along with abnormal uterine bleeding. And so many of them that as midwives, we feel sort of ill-equipped to treat. Yeah. And there's a little bit of an overlap with pelvic pain, which is like my least favorite thing to see on my schedule. Um, so yeah, abnormal uterine bleeding and pelvic pain with both of these. So today we're going to talk about adenomyosis and uterine fibroids. Um, so fun topics. <laughs> fun? No, not really, but um, good topics in that there are some similarities, um, but also very um, big differences between the two. And we're going to talk a bit about what each condition is, um, as we talked about some of the differentials and how we can um, compare and contrast. And then we'll talk just a little bit about some of the conservative therapies, because um, as you mentioned, these are a little bit more complex, abnormal uterine bleeding issues. And sometimes we need to have some surgical intervention or um, pull in our colleagues from consulting or referrals. Right. Well, I think that like, let's start with fibroids because okay. I think that's the one that I, I feel like is the more benign of the things. Um, yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, so fibroids are lyomyomata or uh, tumors benign tumors that grow, um, in or on the uterus and, um, are made up of fibrous tissue and smooth muscle. And they can be in a lot of places, right? Yes. And people can have multiple fibroids. And so they can have a really, it just enlarges the overall mass of the uterus and also surface area, depending on where they are, whether that's the endometrium or, um, external, or within the muscles. So we can talk about all of the different kinds, but basically they're benign growths of smooth muscle and fibrous tissue. So I just want to like clear up a thing because we've been talking about this in exam prep a lot about fibroids. And then I want to get into like where they are and how to find them, et cetera. But what is the number one complaint of people who have fibroids? And it's probably not what most people are thinking. Mm-hmm. Interesting I question. Think about what I see, it's usually heavy bleeding. If they have symptoms, it is heavy bleeding. But the majority of women who have fibroids do not have any symptoms. Because okay, the majority of women who have fibroids, it was a trick question. The majority of women who have fibroids, most of them don't know that they have fibroids unless for some reason they've had a pelvic exam and somebody's felt an enlarged uterus. They've had some sort of imaging. They've had a C-section and then somebody has, you know, noticed that they have a fibroid, all of the things, right? So I think it's really important for people to recognize that fibroids are not something that people like always recognize that they have. 
nor do they recognize that they have symptoms that are related to their fibroids. That's a really good point. Like it might be an incidental finding, as you mentioned, during some other surgery or birth, um, or someone had an ultrasound for some other reason and they just happened and we happen to notice that they have fibroids. So that's a really good point. Um, yeah. But yes, the people that are seeking care because they're having really, really heavy menses, that tends to be those people that end up with having fibroids. So, um, all right. So tell me about, I was going to say, tell me about all the locations. Oh, okay. So the different locations, um, they can be sometimes within the, um, lining of the endometrium. Um, so they could be, um, uh, pedunculated, like they like kind of hang into off of a little stalk, hang into the endometrial cavity, um, and take up space there. They could be, uh, submucosal. So they grow right underneath the uterine lining, um, and into, into that endometrial lining. And you can imagine that kind of distorts the inside part of the the uterus, um, where we build our menstrual flow, that sort of thing. Um, and then we can also have them, um, intramural kind of a funny word. I always think of that as like sports, but, um, intramural is inside the muscle. And so that's within the uterine muscle layer, uh, the myometrium. You could end up with, um, being like subserosal, so if you think of the serosa or the outside tissue of the uterus, so they're kind of growing on the outside of the uterus and, and kind of almost into the pelvic cavity. And then they could also be cervical. Those are a little bit more rare, um, but found on the walls of the cervix down low. I, you know, sometimes in, I feel like in pregnancy, when I've had patients with them, they're in that lower uterine segment um, and can either create, um, kind of a barrier of like the pathway for the fetus out um, if they're growing in the lower uterine segment, or they make that lower uterine segment less likely to contract well after birth and then can lead to heavy bleeding postpartum as well. So they can be in lots of different places um, and how you interpret the findings on an ultrasound report is really helpful to think about exactly where the fibroid is. Interesting that you are so first off, pedunculated is my favorite word. I agree. I don't know why. I always want to just say things that are, things are pedunculated. But what you were saying too about location, it's very interesting to me because I've had this experience recently where I've had patients who have significant fibroids in the intrapartum setting. And the worry always is like, are they going, is their uterine muscle going to contract the way we want it to? And one of these patients had like a six or seven centimeter like near the cervix, like lower uterine segment fibroid that was palpable on, on vaginal exam. And I was like, is that thing going to get out of the way when a head comes down and comes through there? Or is the cervix going to do what it's supposed to do because of the location of this fibroid? So, and funny enough, like all of these cases where we have had fibroids that have been diagnosed, um, and then patients come in with term pregnancies. I haven't seen yet somebody get sectioned because of like a failure to progress related to fibroid or fibroid placement. So I think that's encouraging to think about. I think it's easy to get um, excited about the fact that whether or not your patient's going to be able to do that, like have a like have a successful vaginal delivery because of their fibroids. But um, just 
I guess, empirically speaking from like clinical practice, from a clinical practice standpoint, like we haven't seen a lot of that. Um, they, they, they tend to get out of the way. And in the context of C-section, if somebody has fibroids, they do not want to resect fibroids during a C-section because there's so much vasculature that's happening in the uterus during pregnancy, like taking fibroids off or out at the same time you have a C-section is really advised, not advised. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about where they can be located. I think it's interesting to think about when they're most common. And it's really kind of in the later reproductive years. So from like age 35 to like 50 or so is the more common time that people will present with symptoms of fibroids. Um, And so there's probably... You know, it doesn't mean that people younger than 35 or those older than 50 can't get them. It's just that those are that's the more common time. Um, and they can vary throughout someone's life. Like they grow and change in size and and where they're located. And people can, as we mentioned, have multiple fibroids at once. Um, but it's interesting to see over time how they can change during pregnancy. It's always funny when we find one early in pregnancy. Um, just incidentally. And then I always joke that I feel like we have more pictures of the fibroid than we do of the fetus um, at some point in time, because we're watching to see, does it shrink? Does it grow larger? How does it interact with the pregnancy? That kind of idea. But that's kind of the most common time to get them. And then you had mentioned that most people or a lot of people don't have any symptoms at all, but if they do present with symptoms, Number one is those heavy menstrual cycles, um, also dysmenorrhea or painful bleeding. Um, they could have a lot of like pelvic pressure and kind of like even low back pain if they have fibroids. But that, I think if we think about the size of the uterus, that makes sense that there could be more pressure and pain, um, could even be pain down into the legs, depending on the heaviness of the uterus with those fibroids, um, They can have bloating or swelling in the abdomen and some potential weight gain, um, pain during intercourse, some urinary frequency, things that make sense if you think about a structural issue taking up space in the pelvis. Yeah, I think too that like there are some of those symptoms that you talked about that that is those are the symptoms that bring women in like the things that we don't tolerate, right? We don't tolerate like feeling bloated all the time. We don't tolerate heavy menstrual bleeding. We don't tolerate like feeling like we're like, um, having fullness in our pelvises. There's just like, I feel like there's a checklist of things that like when you, when women come in, like they can tolerate some things, but they're not going to tolerate others. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I do feel like it, and I, I don't have this in the data. I haven't read this in, you know, journal articles or anything like that. But I do definitely feel like it runs in families as well. So if your mom and your sisters have all had hysterectomies because they had really heavy bleeding and that kind of idea, um, and we find a fibroid, I'm not surprised by that because it seems like that's probably been something that that family and those women experienced within that uh, familial line. But definitely, I agree when they come in, by the time someone comes in for these kinds of complaints, you're right, there's just not tolerating it. Well, like, I need something done. Um, And so we've kind of talked about, you know, ultrasound being used to tell us a lot. I do think that a pelvic ultrasound is probably the place that I typically start with these kinds of patients. Um, 
And it's nice when you do find something, a structural reason that they're having the heavy bleeding and the pain or discomfort that they're having, because then at least we know something that we can target some therapy towards. Yeah. So you just went there (laughs) with therapies, things that we can do. And and the surgical piece, you've mentioned it before that lots of women who will come in, will say like, oh, my mom and my sister both had hysterectomies. Mm-hmm. That is the fix, right? The fix is if you are done using that organ and you are having significant um, symptoms and or like disruptions in quality of life, hysterectomy is the option. It's certainly the definitive treatment. Like it will fix the problem. There are other things that we can ch- try that are more conservative. Um, but you're right. The definitive fix for adenomyosis or fibroids is definitely surgical intervention. Hysterectomy. I also want to be clear because this is maybe not something that we've said in the context of the podcast about hysterectomy. So it used to be in the days of our moms and our grandmothers that when you had a hysterectomy, you had a TAH, right? a total abdominal hysterectomy. You, they took your uterus, but when they, the, the nomenclature of this thing has changed, right? They called it a total hysterectomy when, and that meant that they took your ovaries, your tubes and your uterus total, right? Now we define what pieces we take. And in Latin, the word hyster, right? Woman, right? Taking out the uterus um, is just that organ, right? If you have other surgery, so you have you have your tubes taken out, salpingectomy, right? You have your ovaries taken out, oophorectomy. So you want to look for those words. So the definitive piece for these people, right, is hysterectomy. You don't have to take everything, just the uterus. Yeah. Um, as an as an interesting aside, the new research on ovarian cancer I find is totally fascinating that most ovarian cancer is not actually ovarian. It's actually tubal in nature, which is now when, why when we do tubals, we don't just take out a segment of the tube. We take out the whole tube if people are going to be done with them because of that decreased risk for ovarian cancer. So I think that's really also wildly interesting that, um, that, that just what we have learned over the last, you know, couple of decades about progression of, you know, female reproductive cancers. So anyway, my aside for that was just don't forget that when people have surgery, that we define them by the pieces that are taken out. Well, and so what you might see in the chart, because I, I don't feel that patients always know what was removed, but if you get their medical records, you're seeing the previous documentation, it could be a TAH with BSO, and that would be everything was taken, uterus, um, fallopian tubes, ovaries or a TVH, total vaginal hysterectomy with BSO, or it could be, um, you know, the hysterectomy with salpingectomy, like you were talking about, but they leave the ovaries. And sometimes depending on whether or not they leave the ovaries or not may depend on the age of the person at the time that they're having the surgery. Um, Surgical menopause is difficult for people, but also depending on their age, they may decide to take the ovaries because of cancer risk. You're exactly right on... um, being really clear on exactly what the surgery was um, and getting the op report and reading that is probably one of the best things that you can do. Same would go if someone has a myomectomy. So maybe they're younger and they just have a removal of a fibroid from the myometrium because they're trying to protect their future childbearing. Um, It's important to know where the fibroid was removed from during a myomectomy because that can have implications for future childbearing. 
delivered right, well. where that incision into that uterine muscle happened. Exactly. I will say that, exactly. that my urogynecologist left my ovaries because when I had my hysterectomy, I was so young, but took my tubes because A, exactly. I wasn't going to need them. And B, like, that's the place where you're going to get ovarian cancer, but was kind enough to leave both of my ovaries because he said they looked amazing. But sometimes that's a game time decision. Well, I mean, who doesn't want to have amazing looking ovaries? Healthy, at least, if nothing else. Yes. All right. So some conservative therapies um, that we can think about for fibroids, just want to mention them here. We're not going to get deep into you know, medication regimens and that sort of thing, but mention that these are some of the therapies. So birth control pills, birth control pills. Always. Yeah. Yeah. They can work really well. Um, We could also use um, TXA that works for people that have heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, And so transexemic acid, um, it could be called Lysteta. Um, as a brand name, but that can work really well in that it reduces the amount of blood loss um, that could be caused by the fibroids. We can also use IUDs if there is not, um, and and progestin releasing. So our love and adjustral IUDs are really, really helpful in these situations um, if they don't have fibroids that distort the endometrial cavity. So we, um, you could in those situations potentially think about, um, you know, like, uh, um, ultrasound guided, um, IUD insertion, but in general, if the, IUD, if the fibroids are intramural or they're sub, um, serosal or something like that, you, it wouldn't be a reason, um, that you wouldn't want to do an IUD and the IUD could really help decrease the amount of bleeding and shrink the size of those fibroids. We don't talk a lot about Lupron because I feel like it's something that we used to use a lot back in the day. I can remember the OBs that I worked for when I was in nursing school, like, like Lupron was like a, like a thing, like all the time it was a thing. And, but Lupron is actually a really great option for people who have fibroids because of the mechanism of action. Those, they will shrink those fibroids. Um, Lupron is a, a GNRH agonist and it's, um, it actually functionally shuts your like reproductive system down. So it almost makes you feel like you're in menopause. Um, and some people hate that feeling, but depending like if they don't want a surgical option or, um, they're willing to, I guess, uh, weather those symptoms, um, Lupron is something that you can give and that's an office medication. Like they can order it, bring it, have it injected in the office. Um, I feel like it's kind of down the road of the things that I would choose for my patients. Um, and the the other piece of Lupron is, is that if you can't handle like the side effects, the menopausal side effects, you can add back some of the, um, estrogen or progesterone, but then you don't get the quality from the Lupron where they, it shrinks the actual size of the fibroid. So you have to like weigh one versus the other, like, Hey, this thing is great. It's going to shrink the fibroids, but I'm going to have menopause symptoms. And, or if I don't want the menopause symptoms, it's not really going to shrink them, but it may help with the other symptoms like heavy menstrual bleeding. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, because of the symptoms that Lupron can lead to and, and how difficult it can be to tolerate, um, it can really improve the fibroid symptoms, but there's all those other side effects you talked about. A lot of times therapy with that is limited to like six to 12 months or so. Um, and as soon as the medication stopped, the fibroid may grow back to the original size. 
And it's really bad for your bones. Like, let's be clear. Like, because it puts you in this menopausal state, like you are at more risk for things like osteoporosis. So when Mm -hmm. we think about things like, and and actually what's interesting is the actual drug Depo-Lupron. If you think about what Depo does to bone density in people who use it for birth control, it's the same sort of situation that happens when you use this for fibroids. Yeah. Different drugs, Depo-Provera versus Depo-Lupron, but uh, an interesting way to make a connection. Yeah, absolutely. So those are some of the more conservative therapies, depending on your practice, you may still need consultation um, with physician, you know, like co-management or um, advice, that sort of thing, depending on whether or not how your scope of practice covers more complex GYN. But certainly if someone needs a surgical procedure or something more advanced, then that would be generally a referral um, to someone that does those types of procedures. And we already talked about hysterectomy and myomectomy being surgical interventions. But then there's also some um, interventional radiology things that can be done, like uterine artery embolization um, or ablation. Yeah, and uterine artery embolization is not reserved for just fibroids. This is a procedure like a, um, uh, a radiology procedure that is actually helpful for a lot of things. And I think you'll see that more in the setting of women who have, um, like postpartum hemorrhage or a surgical hemorrhage from, um, having a C-section. That's a pretty common intervention for people. If we can't get their bleeding to stop with something like a Jada or a Bakary, but so like hearing about uterine artery embolization in this setting, um, just don't be confused. That's the same one that we do for all these other kinds of diagnoses as well. Yeah. And basically what we're doing is like the, during that type of procedure is injecting these little particles that will occlude the blood vessels that go to the fibroid, therefore causing it to kind of shrink necrose, that kind of idea. And then ablation as well, um, uses energy or heat, um, to shrink the size of the fibroids. Um, so some this places is not, you, this is not the endometrial ablation though, that we think right. about for people who right. have heavy menstrual bleeding. So when you have an endometrial ablation, they put this, this balloon up into the uterine cavity and then like fill the balloon up and the balloon gets hot and it scars the inside of the endometrium. That's like the same idea, right? Ablation meaning heat, but with a, with the fibroids, they actually go in and find the actual fibroid and use heat to shrink it. So it's a, the word is the same ablation, but it's a different mechanism when we're talking about fibroids. Same kind of use of heat and energy to, to reduce the amount of bleeding and the symptoms, but you're exactly right versus filling the endometrium and heating the endometrial lining versus targeting it right on the fibroid. So good point. All right. Did we hit everything about fibroids? I feel like we probably I think so. Yeah. So something that can be somewhat similar, but is very different in what it is, is adenomyosis. And adenomyosis, when I teach about it, when I think about it, I think of it as almost like endometriosis in the muscle of the uterus because it's it's endometrial tissue that is growing within the muscle layer. Um, and so it's almost, it's that same kind of idea of ectopic endometrium. 
but it's um, in the lining of the uterus. And so it overall makes the uterus enlarged um, and kind of grumpy. That endometrial tissue responds to the hormonal levels of the menstrual cycle and reacts just the same way the endometrium does. And so you can imagine the kind of discomfort and large, you know, increased size that that could cause if someone had adenomyosis. Well, and adenomyosis and fibroids have kind of similar pathophysiology as well, right? Where Mm -hmm. like it has to do with some dysfunction of growth factor or dysregulated like growth within the uterus. So when you were talking about adenomyosis, I was thinking who gets this? And it's, it's usually women over 40, right? And who, and generally people who are multiparous. Yes. Yes. Um, and they may have been diagnosed with endometriosis in the past. They may have had fibroids in the past. There is some overlap there, but you're right. This is a little bit older, um, typically patients presenting and kind of the same symptoms in that they they have a lot of um, heavy bleeding, a lot of pelvic pain and pressure, um, severe cramping all of those different things that we mentioned about having leg and back pain because of that enlarged uterus, but the pelvic pressure um, and dyspronia pain with intercourse can be pretty significant in people that have adenomyosis. So what brings the adenomyosis people in? Is it the same? Is it still the abnormal uterine bleeding and sort of the abdominal pressure or heaviness? Yes. Yeah. And I, and I feel like, um, it can be something that maybe they've been dealing with more long-term. Like there wasn't anybody that kind of put a finger on it and said, this is what's causing the discomfort. Maybe they've kind of been reporting heavy periods for a while. Um, and definitely those patients that could have multiple things going on. Like we mentioned, there can be overlap between endometriosis and adenomyosis or, adenomyosis and fibroids. Um, so typically these are patients that have more than one thing going on with their uterus at the same time. And so maybe the symptoms are even more pronounced. I also was just thinking about this because I was like, there's something about adenomyosis that somebody like put into my head. And it's the only thing I can ever really like truly have a good recall of. And it's that a predisposing factor for under, um, for adenomyosis is more than one pregnancy, a history of miscarriage, curatage, endometrial resection, cesarean, or tamoxifen. And the thing I remember is adenomyosis can definitely be a side effect and or a consequence of having a DNC or a DNE. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because of the scraping of the uterine lining, it can cause that adenomyosis. And I remember that like thinking, oh. Like, cause we some, sometimes we think that like having a DNC seems like a low side effect, low complication kind of procedure where in reality, if that DNC is done with any kind of vigor for lack of a better word, well, it, like can word to adeno- it can lead to adenomyosis. Yeah. Aggressive, just- aggressive DNC is, I mean, that's also a. That seems a little like more harsh, but aggressive always seems like a bad word, right? But vigor, vigor, we think of, you know, lively, good. Um, It's a good point because it's disrupting that endometrial lining. And um, similarly, I I know I so often 
then we tell stories about ourselves, but I had a curatage after my first delivery because of um, retained fragments um, of my placenta. And that is the only risk factor that I had in my next pregnancy for my placenta previa. And the same kind of idea is that disruption of that uterine lining that then caused abnormal placentation. Um, same kind of idea here. So yes, we could have a, a vigorous um, DNC that could cause some problems. The main so takeaway that I, oh yeah, so treatment. I was going to say, are we treating this the same way we're treating fibroids? Um, not necessarily. I mean, certainly there could be a conservative approach of trying birth control pills and that sort of thing, but truly the only fix, the only way to definitively um, treat the issue is hysterectomy for adenomyosis. And so there are people that will try other things because the patient just really doesn't want a hysterectomy, but generally it does ultimately end up in that um, removal of the uterus to, to fix the problem. I'm also thinking about like when you see a patient in the office and your differentials have fibroids and adenomyosis on it, there is one thing I feel like that it distinguishes the two in terms of things that cause uterine enlargement. So pregnancy obviously could cause mm-hmm. uterine enlargement and fibroids can, as can adenomyosis. But um, people who have adenomyosis tend to have more tenderness, right? Yes. On palpation yes. of their uterus. And I think that is a distinguishing factor too, that when we were talking about um, about symptoms and those kinds of things that we did, didn't really discuss. Yeah, I definitely think about those people that describe that they have just a ton, like their pelvis feels full, and then they have significant discomfort with intercourse or sexual activity. Um, And that's exactly for the reason that you mentioned, just that uterus is really tender to the touch. And so um, I do definitely find that as a distinguishing factor. You can have dyspareunia with endometriosis, you can have dyspareunia with fibroids, but it's really more pronounced in the patients that have adenomyosis. I also feel like we have done a great job of saying, Hey, the definitive treatment for this is X. The problem with adenomyosis and with fibroids and with endometriosis, with a lot of these like dysfunctional or abnormal uterine bleeding diagnoses and, or these things that cause, you know, dyspareunia etc. Isn't the women who resemble our age. It's when they happen in 20 and 30 year old women who are still desiring um, conception. So I think that this is a harder conversation to have and a harder thing to treat for women who still desire pregnancy. Well, and there's a lot of patient, I mean, myself included, I, I kind of, you know, fancy that I have all the organs I came with and I don't really want to have surgery. Um, And so surgical intervention can be a lot for people to undertake. It can also be difficult if they have a lot of other comorbidities. And so not everyone's a good surgical candidate. Um, So surgery isn't just, we're not saying, oh, it's just an easy fix. Um, It's certainly not easy for anyone that's ever had any type of pelvic uh, uterine abdominal surgery. Um, But it is the thing that will ultimately fix the problem because if we remove the uterus, then we don't have 
an abnormal uterine bleeding situation, but um, it is not something that's just an easy decision to make or that people just willy-nilly, you know, oh, I'm just going to have this little surgery done. I have been having some serious concerns about surgical candidates in the intrapartum area in the last few weeks as well. So I'm feeling acutely aware of who is a good surgical candidate and who is not. And so if somebody is still desires pregnancy and they have one of these diagnoses, I think that your um, treatment, right, modalities come down to trying um, pain relief kinds of things, right? Um, There's so much, there's so much on how we deal with kind of chronic pain and and the kinds of things that we should be trying versus like using opioids, which we know that don't really treat pain. They kind of just make you forget you care about it. Yeah. And for people who want to try to have, if they want to try to have babies, you don't really want to put them on birth control or on Lupron or on, you know, some of these other things. I think Lysetta is an absolutely, you know, right choice because you can still be on that and still, you know, maintain your fertility. Well, and we don't want to forget um, our NSAIDs. So remembering that they can really significantly help with inflammation and pain, but also really help decrease the amount of bleeding that someone may experience with their menstrual cycle. So don't forget our NSAIDs in that situation as well. Correct. I, and I know that that's the worst feeling ever as a midwife when you walk into a room and you're like, well, I know you want to have a baby. And so the only thing I'm going to offer you right now is some NSAIDs. And you're like, yeah, like take 800 of ibuprofen every eight hours. It just seems very inadequate. Um, again, I think that's what makes adenomyosis and fibroids in childbearing aged women difficult to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to leave our midwife friends with um, some resource that they can help find helpful. And I don't know if people are still aware, if you're an ACNM member and you get the Journal of Midwifery and Women's Health, you may remember <clears throat> we used to have every single month. I I, I don't look at the print um, journal as much anymore, but there was the Share with Women handouts that were patient teaching and you could copy them and have them as handouts in your clinic and that sort of thing. And there is one, it's rather dated, Um, but it's from 2010 and it's a share with women handout on abnormal uterine bleeding. And I still find it to be really good resource because it goes through all of these different options for people that have abnormal uterine bleeding. Um, it's not specific to fibroids and it's not specific to adenomyosis, but it does really have some good information on it about some of these treatments. And then, you know, one of my favorite things is a menstrual cycle diary. So um, it also has that in a paper format, um, which I find really, really helpful um, in helping people to understand what is happening with their menstrual cycle and that how that may help us know and differentiate some of the different things that may be going on, depending on the timing of the bleeding, the time of the pain, that sort of thing. I uh, also would like to continue to push the idea that there's an app for that. Of course you would. <laughs> Menstrual cycle tracking. Actually, there's about 50 apps for that. Find one that you like and that works for you. There's no right or wrong answer. Um, I was also, as an aside, thinking about you saying that this was published in 2010. And I'm like, 2010 wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was 14 years ago. Yeah, I like to sure think it wasn't that long ago either. <laughs> where 14 years went, um, but it is 14 years ago. Mm-hmm. So there's that. 
Well, Ms. Wow. done a pretty good job covering the similarities and differences between these two conditions. Um, and I hope this helps um, our listener that wanted us to do this topic and help differentiate and, and figure out how you diagnose these conditions. But um, it's been a good, it's been a good discussion, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think we could probably do a podcast episode on all every single diagnosis that goes along with abnormal uterine bleeding. It all kind of comes down to the end product of how do we treat it. Um, and also, don't forget that this is a great opportunity for consultation, um, collaboration, and referral with your you know physician colleagues. We don't always like to go go to them for everything, because we certainly have a scope of practice that we can operate within. But I think that it's important to consider that if somebody needs um, surgery or something that's out of your scope, then um, those are the people you can go to. I think it's funny that you said scope of practice that we can operate within um, because surgery or operation is what we can't do. So cute. Well, I mean, a good conversation, Miss. Thank you for joining us for the Engaged Midwife podcast. We can't wait to talk to you again. Take care.